the, the uh, change of the calendar with this idea of, all right, how, how do I go about you know, making something different this year than, than other years? And if you're hoping that maybe I've got the solution for those 12 pounds, I don't. And nor really am I so concerned about that or probably even Jesus. I'm, I'm sure he wants us all to live disciplined lives. Uh, but, but if we're really to resolve that we will understand God better and as a result live more in alignment with his path, well then, my goodness, what, what better thing could we do as we look at this new year that's coming our way? Now, before I jump into the sermon, there's a couple couple things I just got to, I mean, as I look out and I realize, hey, have we even, like, recognized this? But Carlos is back. Praise God. And, now, and he was, we sent quite a long deployment. It's yeah. it so refreshing to be able to, to see you back, brother, and yeah, welcome. It's, that's terrific. Uh, also, we had a, a bit of a going away party, actually quite a going away party for Reggie Beckham. He just graduated from Norfolk State and likewise was, was commissioned. He was ROTC at Norfolk State, uh, was commissioned, and he heads off to uh, Georgia and will be in the church in actually in Alabama. It's actually closer to, to the base where he'll be. Uh, he'll be with us Wednesday night. You'll be able to say goodbye to him one last time. Uh, nonetheless, uh, getting ready to, to head off in, in that direction. Uh, also, Nate, right, right here, is getting ready to be deployed for how long? Okay, fair enough. I always think he's not telling me because I don't have clearance, but... <laughs> but Nate, Nate gets ready to, to head out in, in not too long, too. And then we've got um, a, a transition that we've been, been knowing about in different degrees with Lex. Uh, at first thinking, no, he's going to head to the beach, and, and he had set up for a goodbye party for the, the teens and the parents, and that's this afternoon, right, at the, at the Tucker's house. So uh, uh, please, if you can make that, that'll be a great chance for him to be able to share. But it, it's actually going to be a bit, of a bit of a bigger move, not to Virginia Beach, but to head in a different direction, to actually be to Denver. Uh, and uh, he'll be able to catch up on, on all of that um, along the lines there and, uh, as, he, as he kind of um, fine-tunes all of that stuff there. I'm sure a lot of it has to do with that girl that he is so uh, excited about sitting next to him. But <laughs> uh, and amen, amen for that. Uh, we we had Shane preach last week. That was so inspiring. All the the news that I heard back from that. Deb and I were down in Daytona Beach. I get to preach down there. That was terrific. And but Shane now heads back over to Sweden part of the long list of people that head out of here and go and do a lot of fantastic stuff. Uh, you know, we also have Josh right here in our, our front row. A lot of you sort of know Josh. I mean, he's here sometimes, but he's he campus ministry, so he's often meeting on the south side. But Josh, when he graduates in just a little bit of time, is heading off to New Zealand. So he will, uh, he will be down there helping out in the campus ministry. And even as I, I think about that, my, my son will be here later today. He, he's actually, Zach is, uh, when he graduates, but again, same time as Josh, uh, he heads to Melbourne, Australia, where he'll be the campus minister down there. So, like, oh, it's great. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> so, it, it is exciting to know that a lot of people are heading a lot of places to do great things for God. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we love these folks, too. So, uh, you got to make sense of it all in some way or another. Anyway. 
that's all the housekeeping type stuff. Big stuff, obviously. But let me, let me jump back now. We are, uh, we are going to be reading today, as we continue through our study of Luke, over in Luke chapter 3. So please jump over there with me. And it's, a, it's an interesting passage, because we're going to make our way through the baptism of Christ as well as His temptation. And while it doesn't seem at the surface to better answer this question, but I often have a question that I wrestle with. And it's, how is grace meant to affect me? And sometimes I think that, and you've probably felt this way too, is that I just, here we go, almost there. I sometimes feel like I just don't get grace. Now, how is it that Paul can say, not I, but the grace of God working in me. I worked harder than all the rest. How is it that he can also say in 2 Corinthians 5 that I am compelled by Christ's love to no longer live for myself, but for him who died for me and was raised again? How, how does that exactly work? I know it is somehow wrapped up in gratitude and we're not meant to try to work harder based on duty or discipline, but we are trying to do that out of gratitude. But maybe I end up feeling as though maybe I'm just not grateful enough or maybe I don't get it enough along the way. And I think I have spurts, but it seems as though those can fade easily. And the main reason for that, if you ever feel that way, and I know when I feel that way, is that I limit grace to an immense degree. As a matter of fact, maybe, maybe not even the half of it, maybe not even the tip of the iceberg of grace is there in my understanding. Because for me, most of the days when I hear the word grace, and then you think, well, what pops into your mind, it usually is associated quite squarely with the idea of forgiveness. And I would, I would hope that that is a component of it. That I've, I have messed up. I've lived a self-indulgent life. I have thumbed my nose at a holy God and did it with arrogance. And yet he forgives me. And I got a pile of debt of sin that is no way possible that I could make right. That I would otherwise carry before me to judgment day and have to deal with it and give an account on that moment. But instead, that whole pile of debt, that whole bunch of mess is completely taken away. And I can stand before him without any concern of all of that. That's pretty good. And you think that, wow, that ought to motivate me. But that ain't the half of it. Because grace is not simply a subtraction equation in our lives. It's not just the removal of your hot mess, but it is also the addition of grace that I don't reflect on, meditate about often enough. And I believe it's because of that that I walk around thinking I don't get grace in that sense. And the addition part is all wrapped up in what we're going to read today. Because we, when we are reborn of Christ, when we come before God having repented, 
receive the gifts that are given to us in baptism, the forgiveness of sins, the receipt of the Holy Spirit, and set on a different course, it is not just a subtraction phenomenon that occurs. The addition part is blow away because what is given to us that is reinforced scripture after scripture is that we are given the righteousness of Christ. The technical word for that throughout most of uh, the New Testament is justified. We are justified. It just sounds like a multisyllabic word that doesn't impact me. I don't wake up like, justified. Oh, that just runs through my veins and kind of you know, cause me to leap to a new day with great excitement. And because I don't, I don't always understand it to the degree that I need to understand it. Today's passage will help us all to understand this a little bit better. That there is an addition process that occurs when all of us come square before God and have the cosmic change of our life by which grace is squarely and surely with certainty administered to every one of us. And the addition process is that you are given all of Jesus's righteousness that he accrued during all of his days on earth. Why is it that we've been reading through Luke? Why does Jesus arrive as a baby? Why does he got to be born in Bethlehem? Why has he got to rise up? And, and up until this point, now he spends 30 years working as a, a builder, a carpenter. Why does he go through all of that? If it's just to take on my sins, if it's just to be this lamb of sacrifice that I put my sins on, he dies, makes right my mess. Why doesn't he just pop on down as a 30-year-old and say, all right, cool, I'm here. The lamb has arrived. I'm going to take all your mess. Watch the misery, the torture, the awful process that I'm going to go through because your sins are so awful to be able to make all of that right. Why does he not just come as a 30-year-old? Well, what we're going to read today helps us to better appreciate why he came as a baby, why he lived an entire life, because why did he do all of that? He did it all to establish a gift of righteousness. If he's going to give you righteousness, he's got to actually do a little something-something along the way. Not just claim righteousness, but live out righteousness. To live an entire life of compassion and heroism and love and selflessness and service. Which he does day after day after day. And from childhood, throughout adolescence, through his teeth, all the way through to his adult years as we come across him now in the scriptures, Jesus has day in and day out been laboring with excitement knowing that every great thing that he does is another addition. All the more shiny, all the more glorious, all the more oh, type of a, of a phenomenon that he is, in a sense, developing because all of that is going to come and be yours. Not just the subtraction, but the addition. And every time that Jesus stoops low, to take care of a child. Every time he reaches out to touch a leper who has not been touched perhaps in a decade by any other human being, not only to love him, but to heal him, 
Every single time that Jesus spends the time to talk to that woman bent over for all those years, to change the course of her life, to help that widow whose son has died, is all that she has, to change the course of their entire life, to spend the time to teach and discuss and to set people free from the enslavement of sin. Every great thing that he does, all of that is all being bundled up in that precious gift of grace that is coming your way. And so now we read in, in Luke 3, in verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven came saying, you are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. And then we have a genealogy here that is, that is listed out. Let me talk about this baptism that Jesus undergoes here. It seems odd. Have you ever thought, why did Jesus have to get baptized? I mean, baptism is, is for the forgiveness of sins. Even John's baptism is, is told in the scriptures was a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We, we read it just a couple weeks ago when we read about his baptism. And you know, even though it's not recorded in Luke's gospel, in the other gospels, when Jesus comes to John saying, hey, I'm going to get baptized too, John has the reaction that all of us would have. What are you, crazy? I don't think he says that way. But I, I can't baptize you. You ought to be baptizing me. And Jesus turns to John, and at that moment, as it's recorded in, in the um, Gospel of Matthew, for example, uh, says to him, it is right for me to do this. Why? To fulfill all righteousness. This is another part of the gift. Jesus was always concerned at every turn, how can he add to righteousness? If this is something that the common man would need to do for righteousness, well, then Jesus was going to do it too. For him, it wasn't for the forgiveness of sins, but it was another way to augment his record of righteousness. That sweet gift of addition that's going to make you awesome in the eyes of heaven that is all getting ready and being prepared for you. I do this to fulfill all righteousness. And when he does so, God is clearly pleased. And what a pretty picture here of heaven opening up, Holy Spirit coming upon him in a special moment, and then God the Father saying of his Son, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. While we don't appreciate the depth of this, when we are born again, we are called to then be sons of God. And we are born of not perishable, but imperishable seed, born again of the enduring word of God. And when you come up out of the water, as Jesus did here, likewise, the sentiment of God the Father, no matter what your background, no matter how many times you've compromised and transgressed, no matter what the filth of the 
life before that had been. At that moment, God looked at you and continues to look at you and says, Horace, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. God in heaven. That's his assertion. That is established here, but likewise then carried on as we are reborn as sons of God who please him. Not because we're all that, but because now we have entered into Christ. And as we enter into Christ, we are clothed with Christ. And when God sees us, he is pleased with us. No matter what we were, he now sees us as we now are. But what we were is all wrapped up in, I guess you'd call it natural man, or the, the, the background of natural man. And where does all that come from? From Adam. From Adam. And, and this passage, interestingly, has a lot to do with Adam. This passage and the next. The genealogy that follows here says, Now Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, or so it was thought, of Joseph. Matthew also has a genealogy. Matthew's genealogy goes back to Abraham. That was important for Matthew because he's writing to a Jewish audience and he wanted to establish the fulfillment of so much that was given to the Jews, starting with Abraham. Luke, however, brings this genealogy all the way back. And you may be saddened to hear that I'm not going to read this entire genealogy. I didn't spend four hours practicing the pronunciation of these names, but that's not why. Uh, but, but when you get to verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. Luke brings it back to Adam to show squarely that Jesus, fully human, having been humbled to a human state, now comes to earth as the fulfillment of what was always meant to be in Adam. God in Adam had great hopes. It was the pinnacle of creation. When he created everything else, it was good. When he saw the sun and the star, it was good. When he separated the, the waters from the sky from the water, it was good. Animals, good. But then when he made man and woman in his image, then God says, it is very good. But as soon as man was tested, he decided that he knew better than God. And in arrogance, in selfish indulgence, decided in the sight of God to go ahead and sin against him. And the fall is what results in Genesis 3. Satan comes to Adam and Eve. Here's an apple. It wasn't an apple, by the way. It just says it was fruit of the tree. We, we call it an apple because the Latin Bible uses the word malum for apple. It's also the word for evil, malum, in the, in the Latin Bible. Trivia. Forget about it. Let's move on. <laughs> and, but with that temptation, knowing a God who loves them that has told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve together decide, that's fine, maybe God doesn't know best. And besides, I want to do it. 
And even though I have greater promises and greater love and greater relationship with God, I want to do what I want to do. And I'm going to just forget about that. And they reject God. Now, here's the deal. Why should we all fall as a result of that? Well, because the Bible says that Adam and Eve are the appropriate representation of each one of us. We said, not me. For me, we'd be here with no belly buttons right now. If, we're, if that were me, we'd be hanging in the Garden of Eden right now. If that were me, we'd have no clothes on and none of us feel shame. Even though I need to lose 12 pounds. If that were me. No, the Bible makes it clear. If it were you, the exact same thing would have happened. And I, the only, the only time I've been confused on that is, is um, when I was in the Philippines, I got to preach in Manila. And, and uh, a bunch of women came to me after the service and insisted, no, I, I don't think it would have gone down like that for us. I'm like, seriously? Like, yeah. I was like, how can you say that? They said, well, if we were there and we saw the fruit and we saw the snake, we would have eaten the snake and tossed the fruit. (laughs) Probably Satan would have used something else for them. But it would have worked. Now, so here we are all in a fallen state needing redemption. And Jesus then comes as, and this is my my first point, the new Adam. And the fact that we changed the calendar to a new year is not the big deal for us right now. The big deal for us right now is that we have not a new year, but we have a new Adam. And just as Adam had a showdown with Satan over temptation, now Jesus comes. And Romans 5 tells us that he comes specifically as fully human so that he too can have a new showdown with the devil. (laughs) Very good. And here it is. A couple years back when Deb and I went to the Holy Land, it was fun walking in a lot of spots. We were in in Sephora and Nazareth, places where the same Roman roads were in place, where there's pretty good evidence that Jesus walked. We were actually on the Sea of Galilee where he walked, but we didn't walk in those footsteps. But but it it was so exciting. Oh my goodness, I am walking on the same stones that Jesus walked on. But then we went down to the Jordan, to the spot where John was likely baptizing. And then from there, we looked at what was the highest place in that area. Because in this temptation, Jesus is going to be tempted and brought up to the highest place. And, and we went over to that spot and we, we moved over there. And then as we walked around, that was eerie. Because not only did you realize, oh my goodness, you know, for 40 days this is where Jesus fasted and walked. But you know who else walked in these same spots? The devil. This is where the devil was walking with Jesus. And tempting him too. And that was, that was eerie. But it helped to drive home the fact that, hey, this stuff is big. And I got to be on my guard. Well, let's, let's, let's read uh, this temptation. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, he is the new Adam in this new showdown. 
But he's not entering into paradise. He's entering into the wilderness. It's south of Jerusalem, just north of the, uh, of the Dead Sea. An area of wilderness that's about 35 miles by 15 miles. And it is desolate. As a matter of fact, it is so desolate that the Hebrew word for this wilderness is the word devastation. And it's hard rock and limestone and the limestone is so hot and it's peeling. It sounds like it's hollow underneath as if there's a furnace there that's going to bust open. It's hot. It's the hottest place there. It's the hottest place on earth because it's right down at the Dead Sea. It is a terrible, terrible place. And the difference between Jesus and Adam is that Adam had it all going on. Paradise. 78 degrees in the daytime with a cool breeze. 64 degrees at night. Everything fine-tuned just right. No, the, the birds are singing. The, the trees are swaying. The grass is soft. There are no weeds. There are no thorns. There are no thistles. He walks by, just puts out his hand. Fruit falls into his hand. It is all going on. It could not be a cooler setup for him. And everything that he sets his hand to do with work blossoms. Never does he try to drill that last screw into the wall only to have it stripped with this much of it left out. It is not a fallen world. It all just heads into the right place, beautifully so. But it's in that environment that Adam is tested. It's in this devastation that Jesus is tested. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Adam had the best of the gourmet of paradise all about him anytime he wanted it. Jesus is in a weakened physical state, to say the least. No food, 40 days in devastation. Also, Jesus is having to be driven into this place by the Holy Spirit. It's not a place where you willingly or excitedly head. It needs to be prompted, and so he is. And he's there by himself. It's one of the worst conditions after time goes on that many report, is that idea of, of being solitary, isolation. It's where you start talking to Wilson the volleyball. It's a, it's a compromising experience when you're by yourself. And yet, Adam had the, the perfect wife. He had Eve with him right there. Jesus faces it alone. Adam faces it in fellowship. One flesh fellowship, as the Bible uh, describes it. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Satan is so crafty, he knows exactly how to fine-tune temptation just for you, and you, you, and Jesus. Jesus was just told in the most encouraging way, this is my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then God, in a sense, directs him rather forcefully into devastation where he waits and for 40 days 
there's no food that shows up. After a while, it's got to be a tempting thought by Jesus to think, all right, is this how you treat a son? Is this what you do after affirming your love? Is I end up in this? The heat? The rocks? The hunger? The loneliness? And now, the tempter. Diablos is on the scene. And so, the devil knows exactly how to get in there. And he says, okay, son of God, really? Really, son of God? What? Come on, have, have a little something to eat. I'm, I'm there for you. you. You need it. Maybe it'll strengthen you. What would be so wrong with that? Well, Jesus here says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And we, we know that it's captured in the, in the other Gospels, but he says just a, a, bit, a bit more with regards to that, where he, where he does say, not only does man not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when tempted to compromise, when tempted to entertain those thoughts that will cause you to compromise on God, on the fact that He loves you, on the fact that He has a plan for you, on the fact that He has higher sights for you, even though you're going through a testing, because He knows that you're going to rise up against it, it's to steal yourself in the Word of God. Jesus answered, "Is written, I man not live on bread alone. The devil then led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And... He said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Again, crafty, crafty, crafty. He's, he's not trying to set him up of, hey, let me seduce you with power. That's not going to get to Jesus. But what he does try to seduce him with is this idea that I know why you're here. You're here to redeem all these people. And while I have authority over them right now, I'll give it all to you. Why not be the king of all these nations? Why not have sway? Why not have utter influence from dusk to dawn over all these people? That way you can bring about your redemption all the more readily. And maybe even more people will come because you'll have that kind of worldly influence over them. He knows what he's doing. What does Jesus say? I mean, it could be easy to justify that one. Well, yeah, cool. Maybe we'll like speed this whole thing up. We'll get everybody back into where they need to be and we'll get the new Jerusalem and the new heaven going. But instead, Jesus is going to wait on God. <clears throat> and Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are... The Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. You know, if he had maybe jumped off and had been grabbed and saved, he would have had his 15 minutes of fame throughout the land for doing so. 
But that's all he would have had. And it would have come to nothing. Instead, through selfless humility and looking at the long haul, Jesus is more than a 15-minute flash in the pan. Jesus is the most influential thing that has ever occurred on planet Earth. Satan wanted to trade all that in for 15 minutes. And this is interesting. He says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now, Adam was tempted and he failed. And as a result, we've lived our lives the way we've lived our lives before Christ. But God always had a plan. And he always had a plan that he would show the greatest of all love by sending his own son to redeem us from the empty way of life that Adam established for us. That was the plan in the Old Testament. It's the plan for us now, even with the advent of Christ. And for us to, to, to recognize that the plan for us in Christ is one by which the new Adam sets the course of mankind on a new path from there on out. As a matter of fact, when the, when the Bible talks about it in a bit more of a kind of a theoretical, not theoretical, but theological sense, let me read this to you. I'm, I'm reading from Romans, but just listen carefully at this difference of what Jesus does versus what Adam did. Consequently, just as one sin resulted in the condemnation for all people, and otherwise, just as Adam's sin resulted in the condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, that is Jesus giving himself for us, resulted in the justification and life for all people. Remember, justification is not just forgiveness. It is the addition of glorious splendor righteousness that is yours. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Righteous. You are not just made neutral. You are not just made blank slate, let me take away the sin. But by Jesus going through all that he does from birth to death, enables us to be righteous. And to have all of this. It's, it's the difference between being in school. Let's say you're in high school looking towards graduation. But things are tough and you decide to compromise. And you cheat on the exam. And you're in an honors school with an honors policy. And you cheated pretty outrageously. They find out about your cheating. And you are expelled. That's our life before Christ. We are expelled. Just as Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden by their sin, so likewise, from fellowship with God, from heaven itself, we are expelled. And if you've not made things right through repentance and reconciliation to God, as the Bible dictates, you're still in that state of expelled. You're out of that school building. All you can do is hang your head low and be ashamed, not only to you, but for generations of your family. That's where we are before Christ. Now, when Christ comes, 
He comes to redeem us. And the grace that he gives, as, as we just read there, is not just the removal of the expulsion. It's not just that we are allowed to go back to school again and all is forgiven. That'd be pretty sweet though. And if you were in that state, or if it were your son or daughter in that state, you would be really excited that they go from being shamefully expelled, ready to say, would you like fries with that order for the rest of their lives, to now being able to have a chance to complete that education. And so back they go. But that's not all. This is the crazy deal that we get. We go back and suddenly, not only are we like not on the off the list and expelled, now when we go back and we look at where we stand in the class rankings, we stand not with our own righteousness, but with the righteousness of Christ. We, we look, what? Horace, 4.4 grade point average. That little cheaty snot that was expelled, suddenly he's back and he's the top of the class? 4.4. I don't know how you get 4.4 anymore. They didn't have that stuff when I was younger, but I know you can't just say 4.0. Everybody's 4.0. I can get that. 4.0. 4.4. The righteousness of Christ. Suddenly, university after university is courting the young man. Come here, full scholarship. Come here, full scholarship. So are we regarded by heaven. Because we have become the righteousness of Christ. 4.4. 4. 4.4. 4. 4. 4. <laughs> well, I'm having trouble deciding. Stanford, maybe. It's nice. I don't know. Maybe Howard. I don't know. We'll see. That's, that's the seat that you sit in. Imagine that for your son or daughter. That, that, that's where they are. You're like, what? We won the lottery with this kid. Oh my God. Praise God. And that's the case. But that's exactly how you're viewed from the heavenly perspective. And it's, it's not just all jive. It's not just all platitudes. It's just all, let me puff you up with some positive thinking. It's not Stuart Smalley. You're good enough. You're nice enough. And darn it, people like you. It's not that kind of stuff. It's not just puffery. It is the equation that is given to us. It's why Jesus went through all this junk. It's why he was starving in the desert. It's why he stood tall in the great showdown. It's why he went from birth all the way to the cross. It is so that you have the 4.4. So that you have righteousness. So you got positive cred to your credit rather than just a blank slate that got wiped away from all your cheating and your mess. That's, that's how you stand. And in the end, with that, Jesus shows us how you live when that's the case. When you live and you live with righteousness, you like it. You're excited by it. You don't want to sully that, stain that with any sort of mess. And it's meant to motivate us. When we're reborn of Christ, we're reborn, again, just not with a blank slate, we're reborn with fantastic righteousness. What do you want to do with that? Suddenly you're more careful. And suddenly you look for ways to reinforce that righteousness at every turn. 
You realize that you are equipped by that righteousness to change the world, to make a difference, to share the gospel, to be a light, to intercede, to love others more deeply. You don't have to wait, oh, should I, can I, I don't know, I feel so insecure. No, God doesn't want any of that. You can. You got what it takes. You got the righteousness of Christ. And look what He went through to give you that. Birth to the cross. Showdown after showdown. This is just one of the showdowns. Hebrews 4 says, He was tested, tempted in every way, but was without sin. He didn't just get tempted with, turn that, to a, turn that stone into bread, take all the nations, but bow down to me, or throw yourself in the temple. That wasn't it. Oh, I, he endured that. No, he was tempted in every way. Who knows how hard that must have been? No, it's, it's one thing to endure blows from someone. But if you go down after one good haymaker... You only know how hard that person can punch up until that point. Jesus stood there, pummeled, time after time after time, in a vulnerable human state. Fully God, yes, but also fully human, so all of this actually means something. And he endured it. Why? Because he knew he could not in any way undermine the gift that's coming your way. Blow after blow. I'm going to stand. I'm not going down. Why? Because you need righteousness. And so he stands through every one of these. And, and for us, we can learn a lesson from Christ. How was it that he responded to any attempt to sully that righteousness? Word of God. The Word of God. And let that be what we look at with a new resolve. And if there's any last charge, it's that. A new Adam, a new resolve. New year, who cares? It's a calendar page. You got a new Adam! And with that, have a new resolve. And what's that new resolve? That you too will immerse yourself in the word of God like Jesus does here. It's interesting that as we look at Jesus, he is able to keep his path pure. Well, Psalm 119 asks, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? By doing what Jesus did. By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Best year ever? It can be. If we appreciate grace, if we get grace, if we know both sides of what we've been given if we know the massive other side of the addition that has been given to us, to appreciate that, meditate on that, start each day with the recognition of that, and then anything that would sully or stain or compromise that righteousness, to be ready with the Word of God. And if we're not sure, make a quick call. We're in fellowship. All right, here's what's been coming my way. Can help me out. Strengthen me through the Word of God. Because I want to revel celebrate, cherish, exalt this righteousness, this gift that I have to stride each day in honor of Jesus with this gift that I've got, this greatness that I am, not of myself, but given to me. As, as Paul says in Philippians, I want a righteousness not of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus. I want to celebrate that which has been given to me. The righteousness that is ours. We've got a new Adam. 
And that new Adam sets us on a new course. We don't have the DNA of Adam. We got the spiritual DNA of Jesus. We've been literally reborn of that seed. That is the new you. This is a new year. You've got a new Adam. But let it be with a new appreciation that we have a new resolve. Amen. Amen. Matter of fact, 